Good morning, everybody. If you don't know me, um, my name's Wayne. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning, um, especially uh, if you're a guest. Um, it's great to have you with us. Um, I'm one of the vicars here. I'm also um, I'm also a chaplain for. I don't know what I I don't know what I did to deserve this. I'm chaplain to Bristol Rovers Football Club, and uh, came up with a new thing that I'm going to introduce to the club uh, yesterday, uh, which is I think at halftime because there's a guy, lovely guy called Lance on the on the microphone at halftime. You know the draw and the DJ and all that. I think we're going to introduce chaplain's theological reflections on the game so far. Let me explain why. Yesterday, there was a chap playing right wing for Fleetwood Town. I didn't know where Fleetwood Town was from either. Anyway, it turns out every time he got the ball, basic 5,000 Bristolians would be like, Judas! Judas! And we're like, so, it's like, so we looked him up, and sure enough, he played for Bristol City. He'd been youth at Bristol City, then played for Bristol City, and then played for a lot of the clubs. But interestingly enough, the club he'd never played for was Bristol Rovers. And so what I wanted to do was go, go, I understand the ire you are directing at this gentleman for having once played for Bristol City. But in order to use the term Judas correctly, he would need to have played for us first. He would need to have been on our side and then crossed over. And so actually the the Judas chant can only be reserved for a player of the opposition who has once played for us. Are we clear on that? Um, I'm going to send an email this week and suggest it. Because I could, you know, and there are other lit- 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 literary references, grammar references, I'm sure I could, you know, I think it's something I could bring to the club. So it's my latest idea. Do be praying for me this week as I suggest that to the club secretary. We are in Genesis, uh, we're in the book of Genesis all year, um, and we're loving it. And we have reached Genesis chapter 15, which is going to come on the screens. You may find it uh, in, uh, on your phone. Uh, or on the Bible, in a Bible, which is, there are Bibles under the chairs. Uh, and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 15 uh, to us. So um, we've done, so if you don't know who Abraham is, he's been called by God, he's followed God, he's, he's kind of messed some stuff up, he's done some stuff um, quite well. He and Lot, uh, his nephew, have separated. Lot's got himself into a bit of trouble. Abraham has rescued Lot, and actually in rescuing Lot and, and in winning a sort of a minor battle, he hasn't taken any of the spoils that he should have taken by right. Instead, he's done something, instead he's met a guy called Melchizedek, who will appear in Hebrews much, much later, and he's given Melchizedek's stuff. So instead of, so he's done some stuff where he should have got some stuff and he's given away, and he's been on a bit of a journey. Um, And then we get to chapter 15. So that's why. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. Um, If you died and you didn't have any children, your chief servant, uh, who this dude is, would get it but your family would die out. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Lord, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. 
As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire part with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Right, this morning I want to talk to us about how we turn doubt into faith. I want to talk to us about how you turn doubt into faith. Doubt is, um, if you look, there's a, yeah, thank you. Doubt is part of, oh, there he is, Jürgen Klopp. Doubt is part of the human nature. Um, it's just part of the human condition to doubt. Um, but what is interesting is doubt is not a kind of, doubt is not a kind of static thing in that I've, in my life, and I know in very everybody else's lives I've ever come across with this, um, is that doubt will lead you somewhere else. Doubt leads to cynicism, cynicism, to despair, to fear, to anger, to resentment, all sorts of stuff. Doubt leads you other places. Somebody this week said mentioned something about um, the death of Terry Jones, Mon- the Monty Python um, member, and talked about. There was, a, there was a cynical, doubting nature to their humour, which on one level was funny, but also summed up um, Britain in the late 60s, early 1970s. And actually, there's a whole load of sociologists who have done this, that as a nation that had built an empire, lost its empire, doubt enters in. And as doubt enters in, it just doesn't stay still. It becomes something else. And so doubt is there. The question is, what do we do when it appears? And, and something I've... Um, that has really struck me as we've been preparing Genesis and, and reading all the way through and then preparing the sermons as we've gone on, is that quite often when we talk about sin, and we talk about sin in church quite a lot, um, we, we often kind of, we, we, result, we, we kind of, we, we boil sin down to, it's the kind of the actions of um, despots, despots, and my, I'm going to put my teeth in this morning, despots and dictators and, and troublesome toddlers. You know, that's where you really see sin working itself out. A dictator and a troublesome toddler. And most of what goes on in my life might not really be sin. But actually, what, what we see again and again in Genesis is that actually um, certain aspects of what it is to be a human being, to be, to be finite, um, so not knowing everything, um, to be fragile, easily broken, and to be fallen, to be living out of relationship with God, leads us to... All sorts of stuff that are quite sinful. Only a couple of weeks ago, Abraham makes a massive error and causes and does some big sinful stuff because of fear. And for our fragility, our finite nature, leads us to doubt. So doubt is normal. The question is um, what we do. And I'm not talking about the kind of doubt that, you know, I'm talking about bigger doubt. I'm talking about doubt in God and his goodness and his kingdom as opposed to doubt, which is increasingly disappearing, doubt that Liverpool might win the league. And there are two things that jumped out at me from the passage about how we can turn our doubt into faith. Um, And the first is this, is that we need to uh, receive a revelation. 
receive a revelation. So this is a passage that is about Abraham's doubt um, about God. And, And the simple point here is that a revelation from God changes everything. A revelation from God changes everything. Abraham has found himself doubting. He's heard God's call to follow. He's heard God's promise that he will inherit the land and that his family will inherit the land. But yet, and he's an old man now, he's increasingly getting old, there is no heir. Abraham wants one heir. All he wants is one son who can inherit all his stuff. And God steps into that doubt with something bigger. And actually, it's not, in a funny sense, it's not something for Abraham, it's himself. Um, A revelation um, of who God is, of his bigger picture, and therefore its impact upon Abraham. It's an encounter with the living God. It's not just fact for Abraham to apply, but it is an encounter with the living God and what he, who he is, what he is like, what he is up to. And in that encounter, Abraham is changed. And friends, what we don't need is more information about God, is we need encounters with God. And, and they change us. So if you were to ask me the question, so I grew up in Ireland where they talk about faith all the time. I grew up not going to church, which makes me really rare. But if you were to say, Wayne, when did you first hear the gospel? I always, my, my, my first answer is I first heard it on a scripture union camp when a guy called Reggie Fry talked about what would happen if I died that night and talked about Jesus having died in my place and that I could be secure in him forever. And something in my heart, and I can feel it now as I say it, went bam, and I knew it was true. And if you say, when did you first hear the gospel, Wayne? I will always go to that story. But at this week, as I stopped and I thought about it, that's not the first time I heard it explained. But it's the first time I heard it. And a revelation from God is when we hear something. There was... um, uh, An encounter with God is something that kind of shifts something in our understanding and in our heart. So I, I, this week, uh, in my procrastination, I've been reading an awful lot about a man called Fred Rogers, who was um, an American uh, TV presenter on uh, PBS, Public Service Television, and presented a show for kind of two-year-olds to five-year-olds for pretty much all of his life and was kind of like a massive hero for Americans. Uh, and in, ni- in the late 90s, uh, an, uh, a journalist called Tom Jono uh, wrote, he, he also wrote Falling Man, which is also well worth re- reading, wrote um, an op-ed piece for Esquire magazine about him. And Juno had a reputation for wanting to find out what was really going on behind the people he would write about. And so he went into this thinking, is this Fred Rogers for real? This kind of wonderful, brilliant guy, is he for real? Now, Rogers, interestingly enough, was an ordained Presbyterian minister who had been ordained in the 1960s as an evangelist to the TV world. Um, and, and Juno was like, this guy can't be for real. And as if you read the article, it was supposed to be originally a few, about 2,000 words. It ends up being 10,000 words. And Juno effectively falls in love with this guy because he's just, he is totally for real. But it ends, the article ends with this beautiful story about Juno being in a room with Rogers and one of the pastors of Rogers' church. And Rogers asking the pastor, if, would you pray for us? And, would you, and saying to Tom, would you join in prayer? And Tom says, I, I said, yes. And Fred said, close the door. And I closed the door. And he says, I, I took Fred's hand and it was warm. And I took, I can't remember the name of the lady's hand. I took her hand and it was cool, but in a good way. And she prayed. And he says this. What is grace? I'm still not certain, but all I know is that my heart felt like a spike, and then, in that room, it opened 
and it felt like an umbrella. An encounter with God changes us. Um, I've shared this story before, and they come like when we first come to faith, but they also kind of, God appears time and time again. So a number of years ago, somebody anonymously paid for me and the person I was working for to go to America to spend a week at a church there. Went, had a great week. There was a friend of mine who I'd worked with in London who was on staff for the church, hang out with them a lot. It was a wonderful week. Um, but I would have kind of described it as a kind of normal week. And then it was on the way home in the plane, uh, I climbed out of my seat to go uh, to the bathroom and I was washing my hands and I looked up and I saw myself in the mirror and, and Bam, I was hit with this view of how God sees me. And it was very different from how I see myself. Was I a Christian before that? Yes. But something happened. And the illustration I use is it's like I had been traveling around a sea lock in Scotland for most of my Christian life, looking at this huge expanse of water, and I turned a corner and realized it was an inlet and there was a whole ocean of grace. Did I know that grace was unimaginably huge before I went into that very small loo on the plane? Yes, I did. But something changed in my heart. And what's happening in this passage is God is encountering Abraham. He is speaking truth to him and promises to him. But in the encounter, there is more than just information. There is a change. Um, Thinking about applying this, the other thing that has struck me coming out of Genesis is that actually a revelation from God is not hard to come by. Our culture seems to think that God is hard to find and difficult to encounter. And yet, as we, uh, basically, as we read Genesis, and this is before Jesus and before Pentecost and before the church and before the pouring out of the Spirit, every time Abraham seems to pitch up his tent somewhere, the Lord shows up. Um, and if there's one thing I want you to know, take, God is not hard to find because he constantly keeps showing up. It's not, as in, it's the whole thing, we're not looking for him, he is looking for us. And so Abraham and loads of other people in the Old Testament will keep encountering God. And we, the other side of the cross, the other side of the forgiveness of sins, the other side of resurrection and new life and the pouring out of the spirit of Pentecost and the church, have it so much easier than Abraham. That's what the New Testament teaches us. Have it so much easier that God is in the business of showing up when we gather, when we pray, when we read the Bible, when we worship, when we serve him, as Keith was telling us about life group. And so actually, if we put ourselves in a place to expect God to show up, he will do. That's why we go on about daily prayer. Because actually, if I'm in the practice of reading his word, if I'm in the practice of choosing to worship him and choosing to pray, he shows up. That's why we love going to focus. If I take a week out of my life and I go and I hang out with God's people and I, and I, I put myself in a place where everybody's thinking about him and expecting him to show up, Boy, does he show up. It's why we love doing mission, because actually he is the missionary God, and he more than, he really wants to show up on the mission field. When you step out to pray for somebody in faith, that's, he loves that, so he shows up. And so we want to say, we want to put ourselves in a place so we show up, so to let him show up, to let him do what he wants to do. So the first thing you need to do with your doubts is you need to receive a revelation. And it's not that hard. Be in a little church, come to church, read the Bible, worship, pray, serve him. And you will see he shows up again and again and again and again. So you want to turn down to faith? First of all, receive a revelation. A revelation from God will change everything. Right, secondly, you need to relive a rescue. So um, an, your, an identity that we receive, our identity, who we are, changes everything. Um, it changes how we operate. It changes how, 
how we live, what choices we make. So I'm going to let you into a little bit of a secret. When we moved to Bristol, uh, a friend of mine who is a Bristolian and had been my tutor in Oxford said, when you get to Bristol, you you need to support Bristol City. And so we kind of like, we went along a few times. And if you had asked me up until about 18 months ago, you know, do you have a team in Bristol? I would go, oh, not so sure, but probably Bristol City. And then somebody stepped into my life. Actually, they, they were already in my life. Dave Geel said, the Lord has told me that uh, you're to be the chaplain of Bristol Rovers. And I was like, well, he hasn't told me. <laughs> um, and then he did. Uh, but anyway, from the moment that I first went to training at Rovers and from the, fo- you know, the moment, you know, I, you step into this new identity. You know, I have a lot of blue polyester clothing now that I didn't have 18 months ago. Um, a lot of blue polyester clothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, but actually you step into a new identity. You, you know, so now I am the chaplain to Bristol Rovers. I don't, I don't hate City, but, you know, Rovers are the team. Um, and you step into that identity and you live out of it accordingly. So when we step into a new identity, God changes everything. And the second half of this passage is God inviting Abraham into a new identity and a new future that God is going to secure. And that strange story with the animals, what is going on there is um, it's, it's a kind of an ancient Near East way of making um, an agreement between two parties. So God says, let's make an agreement, Abraham, as you would normally do uh, in our culture. And, and so what we need to do is, is we need to arrange the agreement. So there were, um, there were some animals involved. I don't have the same animals. So the first, the first one I have is, is I, have, I have Abraham's lovely giraffe. Isn't he nice? Do you like him? Uh, and, uh, and there we go. There's a lovely giraffe. And then we have um, Abraham's lovely, um, his mouse. And then we have, and this isn't woolly, but then we have little woolly the sheep. Oh, everybody go, oh. And, and what Abraham was asked, tasked to do was he was, he was basically, you kill him. They're still smiling. And then, this, this is one that breaks my heart. The little, I quite like the giraffe. Sorry, mate. So, so, they, so there's a little less blood and gore than there might have been in the story. But actually, they're arranged and they're separated. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's, a kind of, it's an ancient near each thing. So, so what we would do is, and there'd be a few, there was five, if you remember, but the birds weren't split. And you'd make an agreement, you know, and you'd, you'd kind of shake hands, like we shake hands. It's equivalent to shaking hands. And then, and then you'd say, right, so what I'm going to do for you is, uh, let's say, uh, let's use the modern day, the modern day world system. I'm going to build an extension, and the builder and I are chatting, and we go, well, I'll give you, you know, £40,000 for my extension. And the builder goes, I'll build you an extension. And then instead of shaking hands, you walk through the animals together. And what you're saying is you're saying, well, the builder's saying, well, if I don't complete the extension, may it be to me as it is to these animals. Uh, and I'm saying, and if you complete the extension, I don't pay you. May it be to me as these animals. And we go, great. And on we go. And, and so that's what happens there is that Abraham is asked to set up a kind of ancient Near East agreement. Um, and now the purpose of this is to prepare Abraham for what lies ahead. It's a step up in the, in the revelation of, of, how God, of who God is and how he's operating to prepare Abraham for what lies ahead. So for 400 years, your people will be slaves. Um, you will die, you know. So there's, there's, it's clear that there's some mess coming up. And so God wants to prepare him by making an agreement with him. 
just on a quick tangent, because I'm going to come back to these in a second. <clears throat> God's, uh, what I've noted from scripture, from church story, and from my own life, is that they're kind of revelations from God. They're, they're the revelations like the one I talked about, you know, when, when I first heard the gospel, or um, uh, when I, uh, that one on the plane, or, or that one that that guy talked about in the article, which is just God revealing his goodness and his love for us and drawing us closer to him. And then there are revelations and promises that he makes that are, that are true, but also he, why does he share them with us? Because he wants to prepare us for what lies ahead. So a number of years ago, uh, I went to um, visit another church, and I was sat in a room, about 10 of us, and the senior pastor of this church, and I asked a question to this guy about church management, essentially, about how as churches change and their numbers grow, how do you change your management style? And he suddenly, he started answering it, and then he stopped, and he, he kind of went, hold on a second, I see your church. And he started prophesying over us as a church family. He started describing the kind of church God is calling here. He just started describing elements of our journey, and he started saying some pretty amazing things. I was sat next to this guy who was like an American guy. He goes, wow, you getting this? I was like, no. And he said, you should be. Anyway, so he said all that. Um, and, and I've talked about this before. And then kind of what happened uh, on the back of all of that kind of stuff is everything started going wrong. So the heating went here. Some people, um, I had some really, uh, some really awful personal things uh, and relational things. Unfortunately, I, I can't share with you because it would, it would dishonor other people. Uh, uh, and it got to the point where I found myself uh, 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve that year as I walked to the um, midnight, well, it wasn't midnight, you know, the 11 o'clock service, just weeping and not knowing why. Uh, and I ended up in a doctor's surgery and various different things from there. And one of the things that kind of was looking back was like, well, what was all that about, Lord? And then there was a moment about two years later where I was at another gathering, uh, about 40 people in the room, and somebody said, oh, we just want to pray for people, and we want to pray for people who are feeling kind of like, and, you know, life is tough, da-da-da-da-da. And I remember standing there going, do you know, that, thinking, that's not me. And I remember saying, thank you, Lord. So I didn't respond. And then suddenly somebody who I've never spoken to came up to me who was visiting from another city and said, do you mind if I pray for you? And they, I said, no, great. And they prayed for me. And what was interesting is they've never met me before, as far as I'm aware, you know, like guys in, in other countries don't ring up guys in another city to say, if you ever see this blonde guy, say this over him. He basically said over me what the guy had said over me two years ago in another country. Pretty much used the same terms and the same words. And I was kind of completely blown away by him. And, and what God sometimes does, and this is what he's doing with Abraham here, is he reveals something about his promise and his purposes for him and our role in them to sustain us when things go peak tongue. And as I'm saying that, there's some of us here this morning, that's your life. You think, actually, there were these things that happened. Or there were these moments, these thoughts I had about what God was up to, or promises that have been prayed over me, and I just don't see them happening. And the Lord is saying, it doesn't mean they're not going to happen. Because if I promise everything is yes in Jesus, he who begins a good work will begin to bring it to completion in you. But there is, a, there is a sense that sometimes he shares stuff with us so that we will be sustained through the tough times. And that is what he's doing. But it's bigger than that. It's not just a kind of a promise. It's, 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 it's an entry into an, an identity and a relationship and an agreement that is founded on the activities of God and secured only in God alone. Because as you read the story, do you notice that Abraham doesn't go through the animals? Everybody notice that? As darkness falls, so the birds come and he beats them away. The stuff of God is always, um, is always challenged. Darkness comes, Abraham falls into a darkness, which is just the nature of human life without God. And then a smoking fire appears, 
And that is, that is, that is like an, an illustration of, there's my smoking fire, an illustration of who the Lord is. I'm not going to go through it. And, and the Lord, only the Lord, passes through the animals. And what the Lord is saying to Abraham is going, I'm going to secure your future. You want one son, I'm going to give you more, more, more descendants than there are stars in the sky. I'm going to give, you want this bit of land, I'm going to give you all this land for my purposes. And the Lord gets to the end and says, Abraham, I need you to follow me. And if you don't follow me, may it be to me as it is to these animals. And if I don't keep my end of the bargain, but I will because I'm God, may it be to me as it is to these animals. And James, can you... Get that out of the cellophane for me. And this, interestingly enough, points us somewhere else. Thank you. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. This is my body, broken for you. We walked away from him, we brought sin into the world. We brought fragility, we brought finiteness, as my daughter would say, into the world. We brought all the mess of our lives into the world. And God himself said, I am going to win you back. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you back. And that means paying the penalty for sin. And so you know, I alone am going to walk through here. And may it be to me as it is to these animals so that I may win you back. This is more than just a promise. This is God binding Abraham to him and saying, I am yours and you are mine and it's all on me. An identity that we receive in God because of what God has done changes everything. You want doubt to turn to faith, receive a revelation. But you want doubt to turn to faith, we need to relive a rescue. Doubt is part and parcel of the Christian life. We live in the tension of the now and the not yet. The kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. Paul says you and I, mostly in pretty much everything in our life, see through a glass darkly. But as we see through that glass darkly, the God who has rescued us and is rescuing us and will rescue us promises to be here, to meet with us, to walk with us, to guide us, to lead us. To redeem us. He promises in the power of his spirit and through one another to turn our doubts into faith. Our unbelief into action. Enabling us to live differently. To live for him. To live with him. And to live for everyone else. Our world of doubt needs us to be people of faith. So that they may see the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. So friends, don't be afraid of your days. Turn it to faith.